Welcome, and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After presentations, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star 1. This conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would now like to turn the conference over to the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Please begin. Thank you very much, and welcome to the Mars Curiosity News Telecon for Friday, November 2nd, 2012. I'm Jane Platt with the JPL Media Relations Office at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Today's topic, the latest findings on the Martian atmosphere. After brief presentations from our panelists, we'll take Q&A from reporters, and you can follow along with the visuals for this news conference at http colon slash slash go dot nasa dot gov slash curiosity telecon. Again, http colon slash slash go dot nasa dot gov slash curiosity telecon. And the full names and titles of the presenters are there, but I'm about to introduce them as well. We will hear from Michael Meyer, who's at NASA headquarters in Washington. He's the Mars Science Laboratory Program Scientist and the lead scientist for NASA's Mars Exploration Program. Then we'll hear from Paul Mahaffey of NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. He's the principal investigator for the Sample Analysis at Mars, or SAM instrument, on Curiosity. Then we'll hear from Chris Webster of JPL. He's the instrument lead for the SAM Tunable Laser Spectrometer, which at some point you may hear him refer to as TLS. Then we'll have Sushil Atreya of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and he is a co-investigator for SAM. Lori Leshen is with Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. She's a co-investigator for SAM and for the Alpha Particle X-ray Spectrometer on Curiosity. We're going to start things off with Michael Meyer. Well, thank you, Jane. Since August 6th, Curiosity has been on Mars, exploring the region Gale Crater at the foot of Mount Sharp. A dedicated team of scientists and engineers has been operating this fantastic rover working around the clock on Mars time to ensure the long-term welfare and scientific output of the rover. This must be lab week on Mars. On Tuesday, we heard about the basic composition of the Martian soil measured by the analytical laboratory instrument, Kemen. And today, we'll hear about the first measurements made by the laboratory instrument suite, SAM, Sample Analysis at Mars which includes the results from the quadrupole mass spectrometer and the tunable laser spectrometer. The focus today will be on the atmosphere of Mars. This thin blanket of an atmosphere provides a window into the Martian past. The measurements of methane, carbon dioxide, and argon are key to helping us understand the evolution of the Martian atmosphere and when the planet could have supported microbial life. Let me emphasize, these are the first measurements. And so we can look forward to more discoveries as the instruments are tweaked, the measurements refined, and as we move through time and the seasons of Mars. So to tell us more about SAM, let me turn the telephone over to the principal investigator, Paul Mahaffey. Uh, thanks a lot, Michael. Um, uh, really glad to be here with uh, a few members of the SAM team uh, telling you about uh, our first atmospheric results. Uh, as Michael just mentioned, a really important task of the Curiosity rover is to explore how early environmental conditions on Mars are tied to habitability. 
Uh, for example, what might those beautiful layers we're seeing on Mount Sharp tell us about different processes occurring at different times on Mars and really what was the potential of that environment to support uh, microbial life. So our one path to understanding ancient habitability is a capability that SAM provides to study volatiles, not only the gases in the present atmosphere, but also volatiles released from rocks and soils uh, formed in the distant past. For example, we carry out a search for complex organic compounds in the soils and rocks, and the simplest of compounds, uh, simplest of organic compounds, methane, in the atmosphere. But the comparison of the present atmosphere and the volatiles released from ancient materials isn't limited to organic compounds. We're also focused on elements such as argon and other noble gases and compounds such as carbon dioxide, water, nitrogen, and other species. We're not just looking for the abundance of these species, but we're also looking for the abundance of isotopes of these elements, the ratio of heavy to light versions of atoms that also help us get at planetary processes such as contributions to the atmosphere from the interior, from weathering, and also atmospheric uh, loss over time. So we've not yet looked at volatiles contained in rock, rocks and samples, uh, but we're just getting ready to do that now, soon, we hope, with some scooped sample. Uh, but in the meantime, we've put the SAM instrument to work uh, making some of these atmospheric measurements that you're going to hear about today. And, uh, some of you may be interested in the question of methane in the Mars atmosphere. Uh, Chris Webster is our lead on the tunable laser spectrometer, and uh, he's going to report not only on our search for methane, but also how we secure the carbon dioxide isotope measurements with the tunable laser spectrometer. So we've made a first set of atmospheric composition measurements with the mass spectrometer. Uh, the, we're now comparing to Viking measurements, also made with the mass spectrometer way back in 1976. And so Sheila Trey is going to report on these measurements and also give us some additional thoughts on possible sources and sinks of methane in the Mars atmosphere. Uh, Koi Lori Leshen is going to talk about the SAM isotope data uh, that comes both from the mass spectrometer and the tunable laser spectrometer and how these measurements uh, tie to planetary processes such as atmospheric loss and reservoirs of, of volatiles on Mars. So uh, up on the web, you can take a look at uh, graphic Mahaffey 1 if you like. You'll see the approximate size of our chemistry lab on wheels, about the size of a microwave oven. And this picture was taken very early in 2001 as we were being integrated into the uh, Curiosity rover. Uh, graphic 2 shows more detail of what's really inside this box, a set of three instruments and a slew of supporting components. You can uh, look at the list on the caption there, but for example, turbomolecular pumps spinning at 100,000 revolutions per minute, valves, heaters, and uh, quite a bit of, uh, of other equipment in there. And it's really a great credit to the technical teams at, at Goddard, JPL, colleagues from France, and really many people across the country uh, who has uh, got us to the point where this instrument's really working beautifully on Mars. Uh, we're using just two of these instruments for the atmospheric measurements we'll talk to today. Uh, mass spectrometer, we call it a QMS, a quadrupole mass spectrometer, ionizes some of the sampled atmosphere and then sorts out the ions uh, that the ion source creates by their mass to charge ratio. And then this tunable laser spectrometer that Chris will talk about that looks at the infrared light absorbed by the gases we ingest. And it's really gratifying when we have overlap with some of our data sets uh, since this gives us uh, additional confidence in our measurement. 
Uh, you'll be interested to note that we're operating SAM somewhat like we would operate a laboratory instrument. We do an experiment on Mars by loading up a set of commands. We call it a script. We send that to SAM. SAM then executes the script, and the data comes down to Earth. And then the next day, or so, as we say, on, on uh, Mars, uh, we look at the data. We decide if we want to do something just a little bit different to optimize the experiment. We send up a new script, and, and we continue that process just like we'd be, uh, somewhat like we'd be working in a lab. So I'm not going to keep us from discussing these results. Um, turn it over next to Chris Webster, who's going to talk about the tunable laser spectrometer measurements. Thank you, Paul. Well, let me say right away that I will tell you whether or not we detected methane on Mars. But first, let me tell you a little bit of uh, how we made the measurement. So TLS in SAM is actually the first tunable laser spectrometer to operate on another planet. It uses the same technique used on Earth in hundreds of applications to measure methane, other gases, and isotope ratios in Earth's atmosphere. And as far as uh, absorption is concerned, just as our ozone layer absorbs the harmful ultraviolet light, other gases invisible to us, like methane, absorb infrared light at specific colors or wavelengths that can be used to identify how much gas is in a light path to a detector, for example. Uh, if you look at Webster Graphic 1, you'll see that TLS has two infrared semiconductor lasers on the right that bangs their light 81 times between two mirrors at each end of the gas analysis cell. And that gives us a path length of about 20 meters, giving us high sensitivity. Our detector to the left looks for dips in the laser power called absorption lines due to methane, for example, absorbing the light. Actually, the absorption lines we see are caused by molecules of methane speeding up their rotation as they vibrate in that infrared light. TLS has incredibly high color or spectral resolution. It's 100 times better than any, any instrument from Earth or planetary orbit, and it targets specific lines of interest, uh, as you can see in the graphic uh, two spectra. As far as the purity of the laser, imagine the laser is one note of a piano, one key of a piano, and the three methane lines we're looking for are, say, a dozen keys apart in front of you then the infrared region as a whole would be a piano 100 miles wide. So this gives you an idea of how we tune very precisely to only the keys or pure colors that excite any methane present. The methane and CO2 lines have unique signatures or patterns demonstrated in the lab and that, that agrees with infrared databases. But each gas has very different absorption amounts. CO2 lines are deep. They can be 10% deep and large signal-to-noise ratios of 10,000 to 1, while methane absorptions for Mars are very small, hundredths of a percent, and they're closer to our noise limit. So how do we make these measurements? The CO2 isotope ratios, for example, in both carbon and oxygen, and again, you might refer to the spectrum that's shown, they're determined from the ratio of the appropriate line sizes to those that we would expect from standard isotope mixtures. And uh, what's reassuring, as Paul said, was the similar results for CO2 isotope ratio measurements made using two very different instruments and very different techniques. You're going to hear more about that from uh, Laurie Leshen. Okay, so what about methane? Well, for methane determinations, we measure the difference in spectral line depth between the full cell and empty cell runs. 
that is, those with Mars air in or out of the sample cell. We pump the sample cell out and we take a bunch of readings. Then we fill it with Mars air and we take more readings. And finally, we pump it out again to recheck our background levels. So how much methane did we see, you ask? A search for methane was made on multiple nighttime runs, but so far we have no definitive detection of methane. We see differences between the full cell and empty cell results of a part per billion or so, but the data uncertainty is larger than this and could accommodate values from no methane at all up to towards five parts per billion at the 95% confidence limits. We do plan on additional runs, of course, to look for variability and also to implement the SAM methane concentration experiment that will increase sensitivity by at least a factor of 10 and hopefully more. So the bottom line is that we have no detection of methane so far, but we're going to keep looking in the months ahead since Mars, as we all know, may yet hold surprises for us. With that, I'd like to hand over to Dr. Sushilitra. Thank you, Chris. I'll give a perspective on the SAM atmospheric measurements. So let me just say first that just as rocks carry a record of planets past, the gases in the atmosphere inform us about the coupling between the interior surface and space, as well as chemical, physical, and biogenic processes. And I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I'll focus on three main things about the atmosphere of Mars. The abundance of the gases, there is seasonal variability, and finally, uh, some discussion of methane. Can we get a Treya 1 graphic? In this graphic, you're seeing the stand measurements of the proportions of the most abundant gases in the Martian atmosphere above Gale Crater. Carbon dioxide is found to be 96% by volume, nitrogen and argon 2% each, oxygen 0.14%, and carbon monoxide at 0.06%. Note the vertical scale is logarithmic. The same values are generally consistent with the Viking measurements done 35 years ago, but with one exception, that SAM finds 35% lower value for nitrogen compared to Viking. I should also mention that the SAM measurements are rock solid from one run to another, and they have a high precision. So even at this early stage of the mission, SAM is already proving to be a, a robust laboratory on the surface of Mars. Now that we have confidence in the SAM data on gas abundances, what we'll be, what we'll be doing next is going to be even more exciting, and that is to find out how these gases change from season to season, considering that Mars is a very dynamic planet. Just to give you an idea, Every year, in the winter, 7 trillion tons of carbon dioxide gas condenses as dry ice from the atmosphere onto the polar region. And then it sublimates back into the atmosphere during spring and summer. This causes a huge change of 35% in the atmospheric pressure from summer to winter and back again. We don't see such dramatic swings in pressure on Earth even during largest of st storms such as Hurricane Sandy. What that means is that relative amounts of gases that don't freeze out on Mars, particularly 
nitrogen, argon, and carbon monoxide, should also change seasonally. And there are indications from previous observations that they do for argon and carbon monoxide, at least where the data are available. Currently, there are no data on the seasonal changes in nitrogen. Now, SAM is in a unique position to monitor seasonal changes of all gases as we move from spring at Gale Crater now to summer to winter. We'll determine how the gases that don't freeze out change with seasons and whether they track one another. That's very important. Methane is another gas that would not freeze out on Mars, but most likely its fate is controlled by its various sources and sinks. So in the Atreya 2 graphics, um, I will talk about those. Now, everybody is excited about the possibility of methane on Mars because life as we know it produces methane. And indeed, 90 to 95% of all the methane in the Earth's atmosphere is biologically derived. But as Chris Webster just point discussed, at this time, we don't have a positive detection of methane on Mars. But that could change over time, depending on how methane is produced and how it is destroyed on Mars. So in this graphic, you see that comets UV degradation of interplanetary dust particles and water rock reactions are the major non-biological sources. And then there are the methanogens or methane-producing microbes. But the presence or absence of methane on Mars will depend on how efficiently methane is destroyed on Mars. The conventional destruction mechanism of methane is photochemistry, as on Earth, and that results in a several hundred year lifetime of methane on Mars. But potentially, there could be other things, including the surface, and we know very little about those things. At least for now, the things seem to be winning over the sources, but that also could change with time. Therefore, the TLS on SAM will continue to search for methane on Mars throughout the MSL mission to determine if indeed methane does vary with time. No matter, no matter what we find in the end, it would be a significant result. So stay tuned. The story of methane has just begun, and it's not over. Mars could hold surprises for us. Now I'll turn this over to Laurie Leshen, who will discuss another really important result from SAM on atmospheric isotopes. Laurie. Okay, thank you, Sushil. Okay, now this is the part you've all been waiting for, the isotopes. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I, I will admit that it's, it's a little bit complicated, so stay with me and I'll explain it. Uh, first, let me give you my three main points. Uh, first, Isotopes are highly sensitive tracers of Martian processes like atmospheric loss to space, for example. Second, our SAM isotope results that I'll explain confirm that escape of atmospheric gases to space has been an important process on Mars, and it's likely that a significant amount of atmosphere has been lost over time. And finally, future experiments with SAM will further explore this, as well as other processes related to habitability. And of course, curiosity is all about habitability, and the story of habitability is strongly tied to the story of water on Mars. And the story of water is one with lots of twists and turns. Did Mars once have abundant flowing water, and if so, why is the climate so cold and the atmosphere so thin today as to preclude this? 
What has changed? Well, by studying today's atmosphere, we can gain clues to how Mars' environment has changed because the gases in the current atmosphere are a product of Mars' entire history. To explore these changes, we use those wonderful isotopes. Different isotopes of the same element, say carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-13, have different numbers of neutrons, so they have different masses. And here's the cool part. It turns out that the various physical and chemical processes, like loss of gas to space or crystallization of a mineral from a fluid, affect the lighter and heavier isotopes to different degrees that can result in slightly different mixtures of them. So when we measure relative amounts of different isotopes in gases or in rocks, we can trace which processes have affected them. Some of the processes we're interested in tracing are captured in the graphic lesson one, showing, for example, where water or CO2 exists on Mars, in the deep subsurface where it's released through volcanoes, in polar ices and in the atmosphere, and likely in fluids in the crust. And the arrows in this diagram represent the different processes we're interested in. This is where isotope tracers can give us a clue about whether the process is happening and how important it is. For example, escaping gases from the top of the Martian atmosphere would cause preferential loss of the lighter isotope, meaning the heavier isotope would become more abundant in the atmosphere that's left behind. So now onto the SAM results so far on isotopes. Uh, I think you've already seen that SAM can make many different types of measurements. I think of it like a Swiss Army knife. It's a beautifully integrated set of tools that can do many jobs, or in our case, measurements, on Mars. And of course, it's right there in Curiosity's pocket. Uh, we have two different ways of measuring isotopes with SAM, the mass spectrometer and the tunable laser spectrometer. In the case of carbon isotopes in CO2, we've got fully independent confirmation of our results with the two techniques. So here's what we found with SAM. Both carbon and oxygen isotopes in CO2 in the Martian atmosphere are about 5% enriched relative to the heavier isotope compared to terrestrial standards and Mars primordial composition. In the case of carbon, this likely reflects the loss of atmospheric gases over time. And the amount of gas that's been lost is not yet fully constrained by our measurements, but it could be more than half the CO2 in the Mars atmosphere and near surface reservoirs. Um, going on to the next graphic, lesson two, we've also got good measurements of the ratio of the two most abundant isotopes of argon, argon-40 and 36. Noble gases like argon are especially interesting because they aren't reactive, so they purely reflect atmospheric history. In graphic, lesson two, you see some actual data from our mass spectrometer taken in the last 10 days. The peaks of argon-40 and 36 are clearly visible on the left, as are some of the peaks for CO2. In this case, the measurement shows a ratio of argon-40 to 36 of about 2,000, which is about a factor of seven higher than Earth. This argon isotope ratio also supports the idea that, Mar that atmospheric gases have escaped from Mars over time. And one more fun thing, this argon isotope ratio compares beautifully with measurements of argon in glass blobs inside the Martian meteorite that's shown on the right of this diagram. The glass blobs are the dark patches, for example, near the bottom of the rock. These glass blobs formed uh, when the sample melted a little bit when it was ejected from Mars about a million years ago before it landed on Earth. And we think as it was ejected, it took a little gulp of the Martian atmosphere. And so our new SAM data agree with the argon isotopes in those glass blobs beautifully and, in fact, are probably the best confirmation yet that these meteorites are indeed samples of Mars. 
So to wrap up, these first SAM data are exciting not only for what they're telling us about the atmosphere, but because they give us critical data to compare our future SAM measurements with, we'll be using a lot more tools than our Swiss Army knife. In the atmosphere, we'll be able to measure isotope ratios of other noble gases and of water, which will shed more light on the amount of atmosphere that's been lost. And doing that's going to require a special kind of experiment where we concentrate these gases in SAM before they're analyzed. We want to search for variations in gas abundances and isotopes over the course of a day and of the seasons. And of course, we're also coming up to the first SAM soil and rock analyses and comparing these to the present atmosphere will be very exciting. I think each of the SAM results is like a piece in a puzzle. Today we've got some exciting pieces, but they'll be even better as the puzzle comes together over the course of the mission to give us a full picture of Mars's habitability. And now I'll send it back to Paul for a few final thoughts. Great. So, uh Thanks, Chris, Sushil, and Lori, uh, for that really nice summary. Um, let me give you the punchline on the measurements. Uh, three things. Uh, no detection yet of methane. The search goes on. We'll both push down the detection limits and then look for possible variations in the atmosphere over time. Uh, new data on mixing ratios for the five most abundant species in the atmosphere. We'll continue to monitor the expected changes in these ratios with season. And three, a set of isotope measurements in carbon, oxygen, and argon that are really interesting and a great start on our goals for the mission. Uh, just one last comment. Every time we send a new mission to Mars with a new set of tools, such as the amazing imaging and spectroscopy, for example, we see from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, we learn more and more about this planet. And Curiosity is just an extraordinarily well-equipped mobile lab. And we're really privileged to be participating in this mission with Sam sniffing the air and getting ready to analyze uh, dirt and drilled rocks and learn all we can, not only about present Mars, but start to get a better in-depth understanding of the conditions on ancient Mars and its potential to support life. So uh, back to you, Jane. Thank you very much. Thanks to all our speakers. And we're ready for Q&A. So reporters, if you do have a question, press star 1 and give the operator your name and affiliation, and she'll put you in the queue so we can call on you. I do want to mention that a news release that has just been issued that accompanies this news conference, and that's available online at www.nasa.gov slash MSL, as in Mars Science Lab. Okay, let's take our first question from Science Magazine and Richard Kerr. Yes, uh, thanks. Can you speak up, Richard? We're having a little trouble hearing you. Yes, for uh, Chris Webster, uh, I was wondering how the TLS is uh, working for you on, on the surface of Mars compared to uh, how it was operating in the lab. Uh, I have to say it's uh, working extremely well in general, as is the whole SAM suite. Uh, what's remarkable are uh, all the flight project practices and design principles and all that makes the flight instrument that are implemented really come to uh, fruition in, a, in a, an experiment like this. So the TLS in particular is working exactly the same way it did before we launched. Uh, we see no change in uh, its capability, its sensitivity. Uh, there are no anomalies. And in particular, during the methane measurements, I wanted to point out that the, uh, we have a lot of housekeeping data and we have a lot of tremendous stability in pressures and temperatures that we regulate. Uh, so we really have uh, got a really nice experiment here that we, we're looking forward to future results. So you have not done run any concentrated uh, samples yet? 
No, uh, Richard, that is definitely uh, uh, a goal for us, and that should be done in the next few weeks or months or two, depending on the uh, schedule. Uh, but that will give us a, a, the concentration will enhance our ability by at least an order of magnitude, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to doing that. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. The next question comes from Mark Kaufman at the Washington Post, National Geographic. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> a question about the methane. Um, given um, the, the what we what uh, Mike Muma and others have uh, described about possible emission, um, uh, uh, eruptions of methane in different parts of Mars at different times, um, is there? Could you just walk us through how? Uh, the conditions at Gale Crater would or wouldn't be conducive to finding that happening. In other words, you know, where you are on Mars and then also uh, where the, the, how deep uh, the crater is compared to where this might be released. Um, so this is just, a, again, a way to try to understand um, if the measurement or non-measurement of methane that you've made so far um, it it um, conflicts with that earlier assessment or is kind of immaterial to it? So I, I can address uh, parts of this question as far as Mike Moma's observations are concerned. Uh, it's best to talk to Mike about. But as in, in the Gale Crater, uh, we uh, at the moment, as we pointed out, that we don't have a definite detection of methane. On the other hand, the source does not have to be at Gale Crater. Uh, if there is a source of methane elsewhere, it does not take very long for it to get distributed over the planet. Uh, it takes on the order of about three months to distribute methane from the source. Uh, and that is all we can say at this point. And as we monitor methane over time, we may be able to say more about the possibility of any uh, sources uh, in, in the Gale Crater region, but at the moment we don't have those observations. Okay, the next question is from Leo Enright at Irish TV. Hi, Leo. Yeah, thanks very much, Jane. Uh, very useful, very interesting stuff. Um, just to follow up on that uh, uh, thing about methane, uh, what, what about the, the temporal uh, aspect of it? Uh, is there, again, if you wouldn't mind refreshing us on, on what's understood about the temporal nature of these emissions, that, uh, I mean, could this be a quiet season uh, for methane emission, or, or does that uh, fit in with, uh, with what's currently known? Uh, again, there are observations um, that uh, are from the ground, and those observations indicate that methane comes and goes. Uh, at the moment, we don't really know if it's uh, really true, but we'll, we'll monitor that. Uh, as far as seasons are concerned, um, methane could have a very long lifetime if, if the, the destruction mechanism is conventional. In that case, you would not expect large changes going on in methane over such a short period of time, a few years. But if the observations uh, that exist are correct, that methane comes and goes, it indicates that there are very uh, big sinks on Mars, and that's what we'll try to understand as we get more data. 
Uh, and if I could just follow up, uh, are you surprised uh, uh, that, uh, at, at this um, apparent uh, finding that uh, at least uh, d- down to five parts per billion, uh, you, you don't see methane? I mean, given the Mars Express results and all the other results that we've seen over the, over the years, uh, is this in some respects a surprise? It's not really a surprise to us. We went there with no preconceived notions of what we're going to find once we are on the surface of Mars. And the observations have been published in various papers, and uh, you know they're somewhat controversial. And so all we can say is that we're not really surprised. I mean, we're there to make measurements, and we'll, we'll learn what Mars has to tell us. We're sitting on the surface. We're going to be monitoring this over time. And Chris, do you want to add something to that? I would just add that, as you know, the history of methane on Mars has been an evolving story. And for Sam and Curiosity, we're, we're at the very early chapters, if you like, on, on our experiment. These are the very first experiments. And uh, a lot remains to be seen. A lot could change in the future as we make more experiments, including the concentration. So it's a very exciting time for us. Okay. Thank you. And the next question is going to come from Eric Hand at Nature. Hi. Yeah, thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess my question is for for Chris or Sushil. Yeah, I wish you could go a little bit further. I mean, I do think if you're saying that there's an upper limit, a non-detection with an upper limit of five parts per billion, then your results do call into question these uh, claim detections over the last decade that are at least an order of magnitude more, you know, at the levels of 50 parts per billion. So you're saying you're not surprised, but can you also say um, what appears to me that you've uh, cast uh, uh, significant doubt on these previous detections? The 50 parts per billion that you're referring to are in certain areas of Mars. And, for example, in the North Polar region from Mars Express, they indicate on the order of about 50 parts per billion. And in certain hotspots from ground-based observations, they indicate 50 parts per billion. But that's not the average. So it could be large value in some places. We don't know that because uh, we're sitting at Gale Crater. But like I said before, that from the hotspots, whatever they are, if methane is released, then it's going to be distributed over the planet, and the concentration is going to go down as you move further away from any potential hotspots. Does that answer your question, Eric? Uh, I guess so. I, I still feel like there's a disjunct, a disjoint between what you're seeing and, and some of the previous detections. It, my follow-up, though, if I can ask, um, so, so you are seeing a difference between a full and empty cell of one parts per billion, but with your error bars consistent with a non-detection or an upper limit of five parts per billion. Um, why are those error bars so big, um, and are you being uh, affected or confounded by the Earth air in the four-optic cell? Okay, um, that's a good question. So um, uh, when we make this experiment, and we're being very careful and uh, cautious about announcing such a result, so we have we have included errors from the calibration, 
We include errors from the, the full data analysis. We have ourselves looking at it. We had an independent group look at it. And in particular, the, the temptation to give a one, one sigma error bars, we have uh, moved that to two. These are two sigma error bars, and they're over 95% confidence. And uh, at this stage, that's what we feel is warranted, and that's why the, the range from both the lower and upper limit. Um, and uh, we, uh, as far as the, the, uh, the Florida Air, uh, you, you asked if we were confounded by that. We were surprised at the beginning uh, to see that our methane signals were larger when we first landed, as Paul mentioned. But we've gone through a very simple refinement of the experiment. We've pumped down the pressure in the four optics chamber, and we had another look. We pumped it down from to 24 millibar and had a look, and we started seeing a few parts per billion signal in the full cell, but what troubled us was that it was increasing with time during that full cell analysis, and, um, and, and uh, that was uh, worrisome to us, and immediately we suspected there was still a little leak from the four optics into the main chamber, so we uh, refined the experiment by pumping that way down to a 7 millibar, which is the similar pressure on Earth, and we've repeated the measurement on uh, uh, two particular um, uh, different sols or different on Mars, and the results that we, we describe here, there is, n there is no detectable trend in the data. In other words, the, the mean levels are, uh, are stable throughout the empty cell run and the full cell run, and we feel that the contribution from, from the uh, terrestrial gas in the four optics is, is very low compared to the results that we have. So, so at this point, it's fair to say uh, uh, it, you did have leakage into the main cell initially, and that was a problem. But in the most recent tests, uh, you feel like you've pumped out all of the, the methane in the four optic cell from Earth. We feel we've reduced uh, that contribution to a, to a, a much less significant value, and uh, we're very happy with the experiment we have. This is kind of normal. As you know, you go in the lab to make a very important experiment. You make minor tweaks and refine it. Um, and the, I, I would point out, even with the high contributions after we landed, the, the amounts that we were detecting were only seven or eight parts per billion in that cell. So uh, that's, that's the contribution that we've removed, and now we have a very clean experiment. Now we're ready to repeat it in the future, and uh, uh, Paul and I will, will look at the uh, enrichment, of course, of concentration experiment very carefully as we go forward. All right, thank you. The next question is Irene Klotz from Reuters. Uh, thanks very much. Um, I have a, a couple of uh, questions. The first is, could you just tell us um, how many experiment runs were actually uh, completed to uh, look for the methane? I guess uh, it was uh, four in all, but the uh, first two were we were really uh, focused on uh, this issue of looking at the uh, four optics pressure and deciding whether we wanted to reduce it or not based on the results. Uh, and after the second run, we convinced ourselves, yeah, we wanted to get that uh, four optics pressure down to a level where uh, the possibility of, of contribution of any terrestrial methane would be negligible. And then in the last two runs, uh, we, our normal script would do both quadrupole mass spectrometer and tunable laser spectrometer runs. 
And in the last two runs, we decided just to focus on the tunable laser spectrometer experiments and really give it a long integration time. I mean, the whole run for getting the temperatures up to the point we wanted them and so on was, was many hours. It was, it was seven to eight hours. And so we really got nice long integration times on, the, uh, on those last two experiments. And in fact, between the two experiments, uh, we changed the sequence of background measurements just a little bit to look for trends. So the ones that we're really uh, uh, putting forward as uh, the basis of these results is two experiments. And clearly, we want to do more experiments, and we will. And uh, if anything changes, uh, we'll, we'll get the word out. Um, thanks. Um, first, if you could just say who that was speaking. And then my, my second question is, um, I think I understand this correctly, that whether methane is produced um, geologically or biologically, it's the way that it's being depleted that would impact whether it's present for um, a, an experiment sample like what's been going on with SAMS. Um, is that right? And then uh, is there anything that the fact that you're not seeing it now, does that have any um, implications for what the source of methane on Mars might be, or does it address this depletion issue, um, um, kind of speak stronger to the depletion issue? Thanks. So, yeah, go, this was uh, Paul Mahaffey speaking on the previous question. And uh, let me take a first start at, <laughs> at answering that, and then uh, Sushil can, can jump in. He certainly uh, uh, looked at the, these questions very hard over the years. Um, so I think that if the uh, previous results that show, show high methane present at one time and then very rapidly over periods of months uh, methane disappearing uh, are correct, and uh, then we have a real interesting uh, but not well understood destruction method for methane. The, the destruction method that uh, the photochemists, uh, Sushil among them, uh, uh, predict from their models is this very long lifetime on Mars. And there, if there really was a big, a big source of methane that came along all of a sudden, we really would expect it to persist, for example, over, over the lifetime of the Curiosity mission. And so it'll be really fascinating if we see uh, an increase in methane with TLS, then that's really going to uh, say something about a destruction mechanism that I think right now we don't know too much about. And Sushil may want to add to that as well. So Paul has uh, mostly covered that, but uh, I think you were asked what the potential destruction mechanism might be if uh, methane does get destroyed uh, rapidly. And there are a number of possibilities. Oxidation could play a really important role. And uh, the oxidation process could start from the atmosphere. Uh, hydrogen peroxide is produced in the atmosphere, and it diffuses into the surface of Mars. Uh, there are possibly oxidants in the surface of Mars, including hydrogen peroxide. We don't know that because we don't have those measurements. Uh, and perchlorates have been seen in the surface of Mars, another potential oxidant. So both of these uh, could eventually result in the destruction of methane. Uh, hydrogen peroxide, just to be sure, does not directly destroy methane, but once it's in the, uh, in the surface, the surface reactions could possibly produce uh, superoxides, including peroxy radicals and uh, uh, O2 minus and so on and so forth. And perchloroids are extremely stable, uh, but in 
Over time, they could also break down in the surface and produce both chlorine and, and oxygen. Uh, we already know that the surface contains about half of 8% to a percent of chlorine. And in the atmosphere of Mars, uh, there is always dust which is lifted from the surface. And this, uh, the, the dust would carry the oxidants, and chlorine in particular, into the atmosphere. And chlorine is a huge killer of ozone and methane in the Earth's atmosphere. So that's another possible way of destroying methane relatively quickly. Uh, then there are the dust storms and dust devils, which produce huge electric fields on the order of 10 to 25 kilovolt per meter, and they can directly destroy methane in the atmosphere. So those are some of the ideas on how methane could be depleted rapidly, uh, but a lot of work needs to be done, and as we get more data from, with the TLS, we'll have better constraints on the models, and we'll report them back to you. Um, thanks. That, that's really interesting. I don't think I asked my question well, because what I was really asking about was the source of the methane. Is there anything that, from these first curiosity readings, that it um, uh, it it uh, it helps or um, hinders any of the theories of what the source of the methane might be? Everything is open at this point. I mean, all these sources I described uh, could potentially produce methane, but since we do not have a positive detection, we're not in a position to say what the source is, what the source of methane could be. But once we have a positive detection, yes, we'll be in a position to say that. Thanks very much. Okay, and uh, before we take the next question, I just wanted to do sort of a last call for media. If you do have a question you haven't had a chance yet, go ahead and press star one so we can call on you. And we'll be taking a couple of social media questions that have come, come in via our Ustream broadcast. But in the meantime, the next question is from Dirk Wagner at German Public Radio. Hello. Hello, thank you for doing this. Uh, my question is also about the methane. Uh, given the, the fact that you might or will find methane in the Martian atmosphere in the future, and uh, the big question will be where does that methane come from, will the other instruments on MSL help you to answer that question, to, to give some kind of context information? And I have a quick follow-up, if I may. Thank you. Uh, this is Paul Mahaffey. We're certainly uh, carrying out with curiosity a very uh, detailed examination of the mineralogy of the soils and rocks, as well as the volatiles that are in, in those soils. For example, what the oxidation processes that Sushil talked about might do to the chemistry of those soils and so on. So I think there's certainly the possibility that putting all those pieces together might help us understand uh, further uh, sinks for methane. Uh, I also, this is Laurie, I also think the fact that we'll be measure, looking for organic materials ourselves with them in the soil, looking at the pattern of those organics, and, and will help us understand uh, their origins, and that relates to the methane story as well, again, with methane being sort of the lightest, the most volatile uh, organic. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very interesting point. There, some folks have been looking at the potential for ultraviolet radiation to work on uh, organics from meteoritic infall and so on as a possible production mechanism right. for methane. And so if we find organics in the near surface, that'll, that'll certainly tell us something. All right, so if we don't find the gas itself, maybe we find some residue that might teach us about how the gas might have been produced. 
Okay. Thank you. And uh, just just a quick follow-up for, for Laurie. You said that um, you've got indications that a large part of the Martian atmosphere was uh, lost in, in the past. So uh, what are the mechanisms that are responsible for that? It seems to me that the atmosphere was sort of blown out into space over time. Yeah, that's not a bad description. So there, there are several different ways that, that uh, atmospheric gases can be lost over time. Um, everything ranging from, you know, Early on, large impacts can actually blow off big parts of the atmosphere. Um, because Mars doesn't have a protective magnetic field, so the wind ions can impinge on the top of the atmosphere and knock stuff off. There's all sorts of different ways. And this is a very interesting question. And in fact, NASA's next Mars mission called MAVEN will actually go into orbit and, and look at the gases that are escaping from Mars today and try to help understand those different mechanisms in more detail. Great, thank you. Okay, and uh, I'm going to take a question now from Spaceflight Magazine and Ken Kramer. Ken? And I missed part of this briefing because I just got power back on in New Jersey. <laughs> if uh, my question has already been answered. But, uh, I heard uh, a few minutes ago someone mentioned these hot spots of uh, over 50 parts per billion. I wonder if you've done any modeling experiments and that would then distribute. Have you done any modeling experiments to determine then what would be the uh, the lower global distribution of um, methane throughout Mars, and how would that compare then to your detection limit? And what what do you hope to lower the detection limit to? Thanks. I personally have not done those uh, models. Uh, others have, and. They come up with results which go all over the place. You know, it could be very, very small, or it could be as high as about five to eight parts per billion. And Chris can address the question of how we're going to lower the limits. Well, as far as uh, lowering the limits, uh, first of all, we, as I mentioned, we're, we're being conservative in, in, in giving you the correct result uh, at the 95% confidence. Um, as we make more measurements, if we continue to see a, a null detection, let's say, uh, those statistics can add up and reduce the upper limit on the, on the uh, normal distribution, if you like. The more important, we have this SAM uh, concentration experiment where we basically strip out the CO2 from the atmosphere and thereby enrich the relative amount of methane. So therefore, our signals in the in the cell go up uh, proportionally. May a factor of 10, maybe factors higher than that are achievable. And this will all be validated on the, uh, the identical suite that uh, Paul has at NASA Goddard of the testbed uh, suite. So I think the answer there is through the uh, concentration enhancement experiments, um, assuming that we don't see larger numbers uh, next week when we make the measurement. It's, it's an exciting time. So are you saying you could detect, uh, uh, if I understood you right, 10 times lower, about a 0.5 part per billion? Is that what you're saying? Uh, we, um, yes, we can, and I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to a tenth of a part per billion um, uh, capability. Uh, I, I would say that's a, a better target for us all, all that week. Okay. Yeah, this is Paul Mahaffey again. We uh, have done those types of experiments on uh, breadboards in the laboratory. 
But now we have this very high fidelity test bed that looks very much like SAM. We operate it in a Mars environment. And uh, when we uh, do the tests on our test bed before we send it to Mars, we'll have a much better handle on what that enrichment factor can be. Okay, one, one other question, if I may. Uh, are you looking for any other organics in the atmosphere besides uh, methane? Thanks. Yeah, we certainly are. We scan a very uh, high mass range up from, from one and a half to uh, about 500 atomic mass units or Daltons, and uh, we'll look for whatever shows up. But that's just, this is Lori, just to point out, that's with our, our mass spectrometer, not with the TLS. The only organic um, compound the TLS detects is methane. It's tuned for that. So, it's, again, this is the beauty of the complementarity of the different tools in our, in our SAM suite. All right, thanks, um, Ken, and uh, we're going to take the next question. Um, we're glad to hear, by the way, that you're okay, you have your power back. Um, I'm very happy to hear that. So hopefully things will go better from here on out. We're going to take, uh, and I need to take a couple of quick questions. We're going to get one in first from, we've had a few people asking on our Ustream chat. They're asking questions like, what views do you have about higher than expected temperatures? Does that indicate geological activity? I'm not sure uh, exactly the nature of the question, but I, I think what you might be referring to is that uh, when we got to the surface of Mars, uh, the temperature on the rover itself was just a little bit higher than the thermal predicts from the model which made us happy. Our, our instruments uh, are nice and, and cozy enough to do the experiments. But um, I'm not sure that we've uh, had any unusual uh, temperatures uh, at, at the surface that, that have not been uh, uh, way out of the range of what's predicted. Okay, we're going to take our next question. We're going to go back to Eric Hand of Nature. Great, thanks uh, for letting me. If you can limit it to one question. Yep, that's fine. Yeah, uh, my question is for, for Mike Meyer. Um, so, Chris, you've mentioned that, that by pumping, you could re that could really help you nail this uh, and, and get down to even tenths of a part per billion. But you said you're not going to attempt that for weeks or even months. Um, so I guess my question is for, for Mike Meyer, you know, given, you know, I know there are many mounts to feed on this rover, but uh, given the public interest in this methane question, and given that there are subsequent missions being designed to follow up expressly on this question, why hasn't NASA placed a higher priority on, on doing these experiments routinely and quickly? Well, as, uh, as you mentioned, there are many mouths to feed, and um, this type of thing of concentrating the atmosphere is a first-time activity, and we haven't done everything first-time activity uh, yet, yeah, such as getting a soil sample into SAM is one of the, uh, getting a drill sample uh, is our biggest priority right now. So essentially, um, NASA headquarters doesn't direct the priority of mission measurements other than to set the overall goal of understanding the potential habitability of Gale Crater now and through time. It's the science team that, that actually drives what the order is of the measurements to be made and the engineering capability that permits that. Um, okay, thank you. And we do have, I should mention, we have here with us today 
also Mars Science Laboratory project scientist John Grotzinger, and I believe John had something he wanted to add. Yeah, uh, Eric, I, it's a good it's a good question, and uh, I think it's in, important as a footnote to recognize that our exploration program has enough flexibility so that, given our long long term planning process, which uh, uh, does recognize that we still have a number of first-time activities. We we have another a number of other instruments that are uh, scheduled for operation. That within that plan, we did have the flexibility to schedule the the two uh, observations that that Chris and Paul described, uh, where the four optics were vented, and so we we bumped those ahead. Uh, to very much address the, the point that you're raising, that we can be uh, responsive to the, the things that seem to be late-breaking and, and very exciting. So that's, in fact, exactly what we did do. Uh, but now, at this point, we're going to return to the business of, of feeding SAM uh, with the solid sample that we're going to get from the rock nest location. And then after that, we'll proceed uh, with progress down towards the completion of the Glenelg campaign but as the mission uh, evolves into the Earth time schedule, uh, what that will cause us to do operationally is to enter what we call restricted cells, where we do every other day uh, robotic commanding of the spacecraft. And as that happens, uh, on the cells where we don't have humans in the loop, we can schedule uh, additional activities, and I'm sure that TLS will be part of those, so uh, it, it, it won't be... Uh, it won't be a long wait, uh, but we, we we do keep this in mind. Okay, and we're going to have time for a couple of really quick final questions. Um, let's go back to Leo Enright of Irish TV. Uh, I'm happy, Jane. My question was asked. Okay, excellent. All right, then we'll try a quick question from Mark Kaufman. Uh, yes, and this would be mostly for uh, Lori Leshen. Uh, in in terms of the the findings about the uh, the isotopic. Uh, that light and heavy um, carbon dioxide. Was there anything about that that was surprising? And you know, what does it tell us about, if anything, about the uh, earlier Martian atmosphere? And as a corollary to that, is there any reason? Is there does Sam have the ability to find other trace elements that might have once been uh, widespread in the Martian atmosphere but are no longer? Thanks, Mark. Great question. Let me talk about the isotopes some more. Um, so, so the result is exciting in my mind, more than surprising. One, because it tells us that SAM is working very well because we have the independent confirmation from two different techniques of the carbon isotopes and the CO2. We have had hints um, from both um, missions like Viking and uh, from measurements of Martian meteorites on Earth. That, that we might see enrichments, that we should expect to see enrichments in heavy isotopes in the atmosphere. So again, given that these are our first measurements, seeing something that is somewhat, that is overall consistent with what we expected is, is a good thing. Um, but we are making these measurements more precisely than, than have been made in the past. So they will give us new constraints on the amount of atmosphere that's been lost. And the other critical piece of that is to look at other isotope systems, for example, the D to H in water and the other noble gases, which can all teach us about, um, which each can sort of give us their own view of the constraint on the amount of atmosphere that's been lost and help us make a nice self-consistent story about that over time. So stay tuned because there's more great stuff to come when we start measuring water and the rest of the noble gases as well. And then... The next step for me that's going to be fascinating is to compare those to the minerals in the rocks to 
to understand whether this isotope-enriched um, atmosphere is communicating actively with, uh, with the soils and um, with the minerals and the rocks that will teach us about that great arrow between the atmosphere and the subsurface in my diagram, that interaction between uh, the atmosphere and the subsurface probably happens through fluids. And again, that gets us back to addressing the question of habitability in the, on Mars. Thank you. Thanks, Lori, and thanks to all our panelists. That wraps up our Q&A portion and actually wraps up the whole telecon. The telecon will be archived for one week, starting in just a little while, by calling a couple of numbers. The toll-free number is 800-839-0130, and the international number is 402-998-1223. It will also be archived with the visuals at www.ustream.tv slash NASA JPL. And as always, lots of info on Curiosity is online at www.nasa.gov slash Mars or nasa.gov slash MSL. Thanks everybody for joining us and have a great day and a great weekend. <laughs>